Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe. And now, on with our story time. I had a matchbox with me, and even a small electric flashlight. But of course, the pockets of my tossed and tattered clothing were long since emptied of all heavy articles. As I walked cautiously in the blackness, the draft grew stronger and more offensive, until at length I could regard it as nothing less than a tangible stream of detestable vapor, and it was pouring out of some aperture like the smoke of the genie from the fisherman's jar in the eastern tale. The east, Egypt, truly, this dark cradle of civilization was ever the wellspring of horrors and marvels unspeakable. The more I reflected on the nature of this cavern wind, the greater my sense of disquiet became, for despite its odor, I had sought its source as at least an indirect clue to the outer world. I now saw plainly that this foul emanation could have no admixture or connection whatsoever with the clean air of the Libyan desert, but must be, essentially, a thing vomited from sinister gulfs still lower down. I had, then, been walking in the wrong direction. After a moment's reflection, I decided not to retrace my steps. Away from the draft, I would have no landmarks, for the roughly level rock floor was devoid of distinctive configurations, if, however, I followed up the strange current, I would undoubtedly arrive at an aperture of some sort, from whose gate I could perhaps work round the walls to the opposite side of this cyclopean and otherwise unnavigable hall. That I might fail, I well realized. I saw that this was no part of Kefren's gateway temple which tourists know, and it struck me that this particular hall might be unknown even to archaeologists, and merely stumbled upon by the inquisitive and malignant Arabs who had imprisoned me. If so, was there any present gate of escape to the known parts or to the outer air? What evidence, indeed, did I now possess that this was the gateway temple at all? For a moment, all of my wildest speculations rushed back upon me, and I thought of that vivid melange of impressions, descent, suspension in space, the rope, my wounds, and the dreams that were, frankly, dreams. Was this the end of life for me? Or indeed, would it be merciful if this moment were the end? I could answer none of my own questions, but merely kept on until fate for a third time reduced me to oblivion. This time there were no dreams, but the suddenness of the incident shocked me out of all thought, either conscious or subconscious. Tripping on an unexpected descending step at a point where the offensive draft became strong enough that it offered an actual physical resistance, I was precipitated headlong down a black flight of huge stone stairs into a gulf of hideousness unrelieved. That I ever breathed again is a tribute to the inherent vitality 
of the healthy human organism. Often I look back to that night and feel a touch of actual humor in those repeated lapses of consciousness, lapses whose succession reminded me at the time of nothing more than the crude cinema melodramas of that period. Of course, it is possible that the repeated lapses never occurred, and that all the features of that underground nightmare were merely the dreams of one long coma, which began with the shock of my descent into that abyss, and ended with the healing balm of the outer air and the rising sun, which found me stretched on the sands of Giza before the sardonic and dawn-flushed face of the great sphinx. I prefer to believe this latter explanation as much as I can. Hence, was glad when the police told me that the barrier to Kefren's gateway temple had been found unfastened, and that a sizable rift to the surface did actually exist in one corner of the still-buried part. I was glad, too, when the doctors pronounced my wounds only those to be expected from my seizure, blindfolding, lowering, struggling with bonds, falling some distance, perhaps into a depression in the temple's inner gallery, dragging myself to the outer barrier and escaping from it, and other experiences like that, a very soothing diagnosis. And yet, I know that there must be more than appears on the surface. That extreme descent is too vivid a memory to be dismissed, and it is odd that no one has ever been able to find a man answering the description of my guide, Abdul Ray Saldrogman, the tomb-throated guide who looked and smiled like King Kefren. I have digressed from my connected narrative, perhaps in the vain hope of evading telling of that final incident, that incident which of all is most certainly a hallucination, but I promise to relate it, and I do not break promises. When I recovered, or seemed to recover, my senses, after that fall down the black stone stairs, I was quite as alone, in the darkness, as before. The windy stretch, bad enough before, was now fiendish, yet I had acquired enough familiarity by this time to bear it stoically. Dazedly, I began to crawl away from the place whence the putrid wind came, and with my bleeding hands felt the colossal blocks of a mighty pavement. Once my head struck against a hard object, and when I felt of it, I learned that it was the base of a column, a column of unbelievable immensity, and whose surface was covered with gigantic chiseled hieroglyphics very perceptible to my touch. Crawling on, I encountered other titan columns at incomprehensible distances apart, when suddenly my attention was captured by the realization of something. This must have been impinging on my subconscious hearing long before the conscious sense was aware of it. From some still lower chasm in Earth's bowels, were preceding certain sounds, measured and definite, and like nothing I had ever heard before. That they were very ancient and distinctly ceremonial, I felt almost intuitively, and much reading in Egyptology led me to associate them with the flute, the sandluk, 
the sistrum and the tympanum in their rhythmic piping, droning, rattling, and beating. I felt an element of terror beyond all the known terrors of earth, a terror peculiarly dissociated from personal fear and taking the form of a sort of objective pity for our planet, that it should hold within its depths such horrors as must lie beyond these age of panic cacophonies. The sounds increased in volume, and I felt they were approaching. Then, and may all the gods of all pantheons unite to keep the like from my ears again, I began to hear, faintly and far off, the morbid and millennial tramping of the marching things. It was hideous that footfalls so dissimilar could move in such perfect rhythm. The training of unhallowed thousands of years must lie behind that march of earth's inmost monstrosities, padding, clicking, walking, stalking, rumbling, lumbering, crawling, and all to the abhorrent discords of those mocking instruments. And then, the mummies without souls, the meeting place of the wandering cause, the hordes of the devil-cursed, pharaonic dead of forty centuries, the composite mummies, led through the uttermost onyx voids by King Kefren and his ghoul queen, Nidocris. The tramping grew nearer, Heaven save me from the sound of those feet and paws, and hooves and pads, and talons, as it commenced to acquire detail. Down limitless reaches of sunless pavement, a spark of light flickered in the malodorous wind as I drew behind the enormous circumference of a cyclopic column. I was hoping that I might escape for a while the horror that was stalking million-footed towards me through gigantic hypostyles of inhuman dread and phobic antiquity. The flickers increased, and the tramping and dissonant rhythm grew sickeningly loud. In the quivering orange light, there stood faintly forth a scene of such stony awe that I gasped from sheer wonder that conquered even fear and repulsion. Bases of columns whose middles were higher than human sight, mere bases of things, that must each dwarf the Eiffel Tower to insignificance. Hieroglyphics carved by unthinkable hands in caverns where daylight can only be a remote legend. I would not look at the marching things that I desperately resolved as I heard their creaking joints and nitrous wheezing above the dead music and the dead tramping. It was merciful that they did not speak. But... Their crazy torches began to cast shadows on the surface of those stupendous columns. Hippopotami should not have human hands and carry torches. Men should not have the heads of crocodiles. I tried to turn away, but the shadows and the sounds and the stench were everywhere. Then I remembered something I used to do in half-conscious nightmares as a boy. I began to repeat to myself, This is a dream. This is a dream. But it was of no use, and I could only shut my eyes and pray. At least, that is what I think I did. 
for one is never sure in visions, and I know this could have been nothing more. I wondered whether I should ever reach the world again, and at times would furtively open my eyes to see if I could discern any feature of that place other than the wind of spiced putrefaction, the topless columns, and the thaumatropically grotesque shadows of abnormal horror. Sputtering glare of multiplying torches now shone, and unless this hellish place were wholly without walls, I could not fail to see some boundary or fixed landmark soon. But I had to shut my eyes again when I realized how many of the things were assembling, and when I glimpsed a certain object walking solemnly and steadily, without any body parts above the waist, a fiendish and inulent corpse-gurgle, or death-rattle, now split the very atmosphere, a charnel atmosphere, poisonous with naphtha and bitumen blasts, in one concerted chorus from the ghoulish legion of hybrid blasphemies. My eyes, perversely shaken open, gazed for an instant upon a sight which no human creature could even imagine without panic, fear, and physical exhaustion. The things had filed ceremonially in one direction, the direction of the noisome wind, where the light of their torches showed their bended heads, or the bended heads of such if they had heads. They were worshipping before a great, black, cedar-belching aperture, which reached up almost out of sight, and which I could see was flanked at right angles by two giant staircases, whose ends were far away, in shadow. One of these was indubitably the staircase I had fallen down. The dimensions of the hall were fully in proportion with those of the columns. An ordinary house would have been lost in it, and any average public building could easily have been moved in and moved out. It was so vast a surface that only by moving the eye could one trace its boundaries. So vast, so hideously black, and so aromatically stinking. Directly in front of this yawning polyphemus door, the things were throwing objects, evidently sacrifices or religious offerings to judge by their gestures. Kefren was their leader, sneering King Kefren, or the guide of Abdul Race, crowned with a golden pheasant, and intoning endless formula with the hollow voice of the dead. By his side knelt the beautiful Queen Nidocris, whom I saw in profile for a moment, noting that the right half of her face was eaten away by rats or other ghouls. And I shut my eyes again when I saw what objects were being thrown as offerings to the feeded aperture or its possible local deity. It occurred to me, judging from the elaborateness of this worship, the concealed deity must be one of considerable importance. Was it Osiris or Isis, horns or Anubis, or some vast unknown god of the dead, still more central and supreme. There is a legend that terrible altars and colossi were reared to an unknown one before ever the known gods were worshipped. And now, as I steeled myself to watch the rapt 
and sepulchral iterations of those nameless things, a thought of escape flashed upon me. The hall was dim, and the columns heavy with shadow. With every creature of that nightmare throng absorbed in shocking raptures, it might be barely possible for me to creep past to the faraway end of one of the staircases. There I might ascend unseen, trusting to fate and skill to deliver me from the upper reaches. Where I was, I neither knew nor seriously reflected upon, and for a moment it struck me as an amusing plan, a serious escape from which I knew to be in dream. Was I in some hidden and unsuspected lower realm of Kefren's gateway temple? That temple, which generations have persistently called the Temple of the Sphinx? I could not conjecture, but I resolved to ascend to life and consciousness if wit and muscle could carry me. Wriggling flat on my stomach, I began the anxious journey toward the foot of the left-hand staircase, which seemed the more accessible of the two. I cannot describe the incidents and sensations of that crawl, but they may be guessed when one reflects on what I had to watch steadily in that malign, wind-blown torchlight in order to avoid detection. The bottom of the staircase was, as I have said, far away in shadow, as it had to be to rise without a bend to the dizzy, parapeted landing above the titanic aperture. This placed the last stages of my crawl at some distance from the noisome herd, though the spectacle chilled me even when quite remote in my sight. At length, I succeeded in reaching the steps and began to climb, keeping close to the wall. I observed decorations of the most hideous sort and relied for safety on the absorbed ecstatic interest with which the monstrosities watched the fell, breezed aperture and the impious objects of nourishment they had flung on the pavement before it. Though the staircase was huge and steep, fashioned of vast, polyphory blocks, as if for the feet of a giant, the ascent seemed virtually interminable. Dread of discovery, and the pain which renewed exercise had brought to my wounds, all combined to make that upward crawl a thing of agonizing memory. I had intended, on reaching the landing, to climb immediately onward along whatever upper staircases might mount from there, stopping for no last look at the carrion abominations that pawed and genuflected some seventy or eighty feet below. Yet, a sudden repetition of that thunderous corpse-gargle and death-rattle chorus, coming as I had nearly gained the top of the flight, and showing by its ceremonial rhythm, that it was not an alarm of my discovery. All caused me to pause and peer cautiously over the parapet. The monstrosities were hailing something which had poked itself out of the nauseous aperture to seize the hellish fare proffered it. It was something quite ponderous, even as seen from my height, something yellowish and hairy and endowed with a sort of nervous motion. It was as large, perhaps, as a good-sized hippopotamus, but very curiously shaped. It seemed to have no neck, 
but five separate shaggy heads springing in a row from a roughly cylindrical trunk, the first very small, the second good-sized, the third and fourth equal and largest of all, and the fifth rather small, though not so small as the first. Out of these heads darted curious rigid tentacles which seized ravenously on the excessively great quantities of unmentional food. Once in a while, the thing would leap up, and occasionally it would retreat into its den into a very odd manner. Its locomotion was so inexplicable that I stared in fascination, wishing it would emerge farther from the cavernous lair beneath me. And then it did emerge. It did emerge. And at the sight I turned and fled into the darkness. I fled unknowingly up incredible steps and ladders and inclined planes to which no human sight or logic guided me, and which I must never relegate to the world of dreams. It must have been a dream, or the dawn would never have found me breathing on the sands of Giza, before the sardonic, dawn-flushed face of the great sphinx. The great sphinx, my God! That idle question I asked myself on that sun-blessed morning before, what huge and loathsome abnormality was the Sphinx originally carven to represent? Accursed is the sight, be it in a dream or not, that revealed to me the supreme horror, the unknown god of the dead, which licks its colossal chops in the unsuspected abyss, fed hideous morsels by soulless absurdities that should not exist, a five-headed monster that emerged, that five-headed monster as large as a hippopotamus, the five-headed monster, and that of which is the merest forepaw. But I survived, and I know it was only a dream. The end. And this, my darling, ends our reading for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.